All right. <clears throat> um, yeah, it was fun visiting last fall, and it's great to be back with you all this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 8 this morning, and uh, I love this passage. It's kind of towards the end of Acts chapter 8 uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's such a powerful reminder that God keeps his promises. You think about uh, Jesus's words to his disciples right before uh, his ascension. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Think about promises he made to Abraham in the Old Testament. Through you, uh, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And actually in Acts 8, we begin to see these promises, thousands of year old promises, recent promises by Jesus being fulfilled as the gospel literally is going to what would have been the ends of the earth for a Jewish person, to Ethiopia. Uh, but also, I, I love this passage as well because it's a beautiful picture of just kind of the nuts and bolts of growing as a Christian, the nuts and bolts of Christian community. I mean, you have this kind of like impromptu Bible study uh, between two strangers, and the Lord works mightily through it. And so in some ways, th th this passage uh, can seem very distant from us. They're in, they're in a desert in the Middle East uh, thousands of years ago. And yet, w what they do and how God works is actually really similar to the way that, that we experience God in and through His Word. And so, uh, I'm going to read for us, and we're going to look at two things uh, as we look at this passage this morning. God is going to push his people out in order to bring the outsider in. He's going to push his people out to bring the outsiders in. Let me read Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning, we would ask you to do 
uh, what we saw happen in the passage that we just read. We ask that you would bring us to Jesus through your word. We ask that your word uh, would address our fear and our failure and our shame and show us our need for a Savior and show us the Savior who is humiliated in our place. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in seminary, I met uh, a friend of mine who's, uh, who went to an Ivy League school, and his, uh, when he applied, he submitted an essay with his application, and his, the whole topic of his essay was why he thought Christianity was absurd. He didn't grow up in the church. Uh, he had friends in the church, and as a high schooler, he just come to believe that this is crazy. And the Lord had other plans for him, because in college, he met Jesus, uh, got involved in a church, and then, of course, I met him uh, in seminary. He's now a pastor. Uh, a few years ago, I read an article in Christianity Today chronicling uh, a student named Jordan Mong, who had grown up, and she says, you know, in her own testimony, in her own words, she said, I had ne you know, never been to church, never had ever believed. Uh, for me, atheism wasn't some, like, rebellious stage. It was just always the case. I'd never believed anything. And during her first few weeks and months in college, she was in a class with someone and they were sharing ideas and she quickly realized, this guy has a much different view of the world than I do. Uh, they began discussing, he was a Christian, and they began debating, bantering back and forth. And over the next few weeks and months, uh, she began to see the gospel and see her need for a savior. She says this, she said, the fact that I had failed to adhere to my own ethical standards filled me with deep regret, yet I could do nothing to right these wrongs. The cross no longer looked merely like a symbol of love, but like, an, like the answer to an incurable need. When I read the crucifixion scene in the book of John for the first time, I wept. Uh, some of you may know stories like that. So for some of you, that, that might be your story. Um, I'll, but, and, and here's, here's the crazy thing. I've heard stories like that. I've been a part of stories like that. I've seen the Lord work in mighty ways. And yet, even when I read them and hear about them, I find myself surprised a lot of times. And I confess that to you because if you read through the scriptures, we, we shouldn't be surprised. Because from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, what you'll see throughout the Bible, and as we've seen throughout history, is that God loves to do stuff like that. That God is in the business of taking the most unlikely people and bringing them to himself. We mentioned Abraham before. If you don't know the story of Abraham, Abraham was not looking for God. God pursued Abraham in what's modern-day Iraq from an idol-worshipping town, and made him the father of many nations. It was through him God made his promises. You have women like Rahab, who was a prostitute in an enemy town, and God used her to accomplish his plan of salvation for the Jewish people. In the next chapter, actually at the beginning of this chapter, we, we see Saul, who had become Paul, who's persecuting the church. And the chapter right after this, Saul meets Jesus. 
and the scales fall off his eyes, and he ends up becoming the greatest missionary and church planter the church has known. God loves to take the most unlikely people and use them for his glory. See Jesus doing the same thing. Think about the Jesus, just think about just a few of the people Jesus spends time with. John 5 describes you know, the time in Jerusalem when there's a big feast going on. Jesus isn't at the feast. We're told he's at this pool where people that were referred to in that time as invalids, literally invalid, were hanging out. That's who Jesus goes after. Jesus, out of a crowd, picks out Zacchaeus, a tax collector. No one liked tax collectors. Most people hated tax collectors. That's who Jesus goes after. He pursues the unlikely. He pursues the people that are on the marginalized. Because that's been the mission of his father from day one. And that's what we see in this passage. Jesus has promised them before his ascension. You know, remember, Jesus died, he rose again, and he spends time with his disciples. And right before he goes to be with his father, he says, you are going to be my witnesses in Judea. That, okay, that would have made sense. Judea was kind of like the area that Jesus was, was doing his work. Samaria, it's a bit further out, more hostile for reasons we'll get to in a moment. Um, and then to the ends of the earth. And even in just in this chapter, we see Jesus fulfilling the last two of those promises. At the beginning of chapter 8, we're told that Philip is preaching in Samaria. And that the gospel was received with joy. And now we see the gospel going to someone who's from Ethiopia. For a Jewish person in Palestine, Ethiopia was the end of the earth. 1,500 miles away, this journey would have taken months. The gospel is going out. God is fulfilling his promises. He continues to push them out, not just to people that are far away, but, but to people that, that, that would be so unlikely. If you were going to ask Philip, of course, we're engaging in a hypothetical situation, but if you're going to ask Philip, hey, you know, you, you've been chosen as a deacon. You know, you, you, you're going to get to minister to all sorts of people. Maybe ask him, like, who do you think is not going to show up? He might have thought, oh, I don't know, man. Samaritans and us don't really get along. I mean, I've never really been very far. Probably, probably hadn't traveled more than 45 miles outside of his hometown. And what does he do? He ends up preaching to Samaritans. He ends up meeting an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official, someone very culturally different from him, someone who, according to Jewish custom, would have been ceremonially unclean. And that's who God is reaching. Now, you may not have someone who, like, is as exotic as this Ethiopian eunuch was to Philip in your life. You may not have someone who just feels like they are from a completely different culture. Complete, this would have been like from a different planet almost. But you do. There's people you know. Who are they? Who's the person that maybe you would love to see in, in a row in this church, and yet you really struggle to believe God could bring them there? Who is it? It might be a neighbor or a coworker. Uh, it could be a family member. It could be someone that you don't know, but they're on TV and you don't like them, and you think it would be really shocking if you ended up in the same church with them or in the same community with them. Who, who is it for you? 
One of the ways we know God's Spirit is at work in His people is when we begin to engage the people that the world tells us we really don't have any business being in community with. Or, or maybe we're even increasingly told not, not only not to be in community with them, but to be in community with them would make us some sort of hypocrite or some worse label than that. God is pushing his people out. And, and you all kind of get to experience this. As a, as a church plant, and you're getting to particularize in a month, which, by the way, particularization, for such a great event, that's got to be maybe the worst name for a cool event, like becoming a church. We'll have to come up with a new name at Presbyterian or something. But you're at such a fun, exciting stage. You're a relatively new church, two years old, about to become official. And you get to dream, you're continuing to dream about who do we want to see be a part of this church? Who do we want to reach in this city? And yet, even as you think about those things and dream about those things, you know there are obstacles. It, it's really, it, it's awesome to dream about, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be awesome if this person came? But then maybe as you begin to think about, okay, how's that going to happen? I mean, it's going to take this happening, and I'm going to have to do this, and it's going to have to, like, God's going to have to maybe change my heart a little bit, and there's going to be some logistical things that are going to have to happen. Uh, It's hard work. It's so encouraging, it's really difficult, and it was really difficult in the early church, too. Just think about the promise Jesus made them. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You're going to witness to my name, Jesus says, in Judea. Now, for us, we often think like, oh, Judea, that would have been kind of like home turf. That would have been a pretty easy place to minister. In some ways, sure, Jesus did a lot of great ministry there. Jesus also received a lot of opposition in Judea. And you're going to be my witnesses there, in the comforting places and in the places where he received opposition. And you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. There was not a more hated people group among the Jews and the Samaritans. Maybe the Romans rivaled that. It makes our political divisions look pretty tame when you think about how much hatred was between the Jews and the Samaritans. You're going to be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Who knows what that even looks like? P- people we don't even know exist. Lands we've never heard of. Jesus is saying, you're going to go to those places. That is awesome. And that's terrifying. And that's scary. And you know what? There's going to be bumps in the road. There's bumps in the road in the early church. If you, just think about Peter in Galatians 2. If you're not familiar with Galatians 2, Peter's a part of the early church. Peter's part of Jesus' inner, inner circle, and all these great things are happening. Gentiles who did not grow up hearing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now coming to trust that God. And yet there was like this tension between Okay, well, there's these new people coming in, but we as Jews, we've kind of had our traditions, and, and we, we've kept the Torah, and we're trying to figure out what it looks like to, like, honor that, and yet at the same time believe that we are only saved by the blood of Christ. And they've made clear at the Jerusalem Council, we believe we are saved by the blood of Jesus. We, we don't need more feast observance. We don't need more circumcision, whatever. It's by the blood of Christ and faith in Him that we are saved. And yet, When, like, the Jewish hierarchy comes into town, Peter's hanging out with some Gentiles, and when he sees them, it says he removes himself from their company. 
oh, what a punch in the gut to those people who are probably excited about Jesus, excited about this church, and now you've got this division. You've got this fight. There's bumps in the road. Philip even being a, even being a deacon. Acts 6, the, the whole reason Philip becomes a deacon is because of an argument in the church. There were hurt feelings. There were widows in the church getting preferential treatment. Okay, and, and they said, we've got to figure this out. And so they assigned deacons to figure out how to distribute resources among the widows. This is an exciting time, and yet there's going to be temptations. There's going to be hardship. How do we overcome these things? Because some of the hardship's going to come from out, a lot of it's going to come from within. If you think about it, think about the people you long to see that are not in this church. A lot of the obstacles to go and reach those people actually start in here, don't they? So how do we, so how, how do we address that? We have to name what it is that, that is in here. Because one of the ways the gospel works is it kind of it gets at what we love. Jesus gave himself for us that we might be his, that we might take our cross and follow him. He's a king, and as such, he demands and expects our allegiance to him. And and so one of the ways he's going to work in and through you and me is exposing the other kingdoms to which we bow down, to the other things that we love. What are the things that you love, that you make a priority, that might inhibit you from reaching out? What are the things that you make a priority for yourself or for your family that might be inhibiting you from following Jesus to the ends of the earth? It might be things like uh, your comfort. That's a biggie for me. Love being comfortable. We don't, like it, we don't like getting that disrupted. Some of you love to just know what's ahead. I want the security of just knowing that if I do this, then this will happen. And sometimes following Jesus means we're following a Savior who doesn't always like unveil his plan to us. And that can be hard. Or it, it might just be something that's different between you and the person that, that, that maybe isn't here that you want to see here. You know, maybe you love that, uh, y- you love the way you are. You love your education level. Uh, you love the way your family looks. You love your work structure. Or maybe you're on the other end of that. Maybe there's things about you you don't like about yourself, and it could be those things. Uh, my job status, uh, my income. And see how easily, when, when we make, we can make those things the main thing on either side of that. And it can lead us to either looking down on other people who are not like us, or to constantly feeling inferior when we're around people who are not like us. This was such a big struggle in the early church. It's such a struggle today. And this is what's so beautiful about the gospel the gospel that Philip and this man are about to read, about a Savior who would be humiliated, who was denied justice for us. 
Hebrews 2 says that, that, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The gospel that they're about to read in Isaiah 53 says that there's a problem so big that God himself has to come as a servant and suffer for us. Our sin is so deep that it took a divine intervention and a divine solution. And it took a divine love. He had to do it and he wanted to do it. Our sin is so deep, we can't fix ourselves. He had to do it, and he wanted to do it. Now, if that thing gets into our bones, if that story and that truth gets into our bones, do you see what it does to all those things? All, all, all the things that, that, that are dividing us and them, the things that we're proud about, the things that we're ashamed about, it, it takes those out of the equation because now the thing that we have in common with every other human being on this planet and in Greenville is that they are a broken mess and we are a broken mess apart from the blood of Jesus. There was an article someone forwarded me years ago in an old, in an old email address, so I, I couldn't find it, but the, the summary was, it was kind of like looking at, at different communities and how they responded to tragic and divisive events and how they healed from them. And, and one of the things it was saying was the way that communities, especially diverse communities with people with different socioeconomic uh, standings, the, the way they achieved actually a sense of community, oftentimes, they said that there was a common denominator between cities and towns that accomplished this and that didn't. When there was a common need or a common threat and people rallied around it and worked together against that, whether it was bad roads uh, or an injustice, or a schooling issue. W when the people, when, you, when there was a shared need and a mutual effort towards shared goal, they said those communities came together. I thought, man, that's actually a picture of the gospel and the church. Because as Christians, we get to acknowledge, you know what, that person looks so different from me. But the main thing about them is that they bear the image of our creator and that image has been tainted and Jesus has come back to restore them the most important thing about them and the most important thing about me we have in common we can work together that's the beauty of what happens in the church it's also offensive because it takes us off it's offensive and emboldening it humbles us and yet it emboldens us it levels the playing field God is going to push us out with that good news in order that the outsider might be brought in. Who is God pushing Philip to? Let's talk about this eunuch for a second. Um, Philip and this eunuch are very different people, wildly different. We're not told tons about Philip. He's a, he's a deacon. He was thought well of. Average Jewish guy in Palestine. This eunuch has come from over 1,500 miles away. He came to Jerusalem, is on his way back to Ethiopia. Uh, we're told he's a eunuch, which means he altered his body so that he could not have children. He's very powerful. And those two things are related. Uh, back then, a great sign of devotion to a kingdom <clears throat> is that you would do that. You would remove your ability to have children. 
for a couple reasons. One, it was a sign to tell you that I'm sold out for, for this king or kingdom, or in this case, a queen. Uh, I'm sold out. I'm devoted. But also, it meant that, that you were no longer a threat. You couldn't have any children. Therefore, there was no promise of an heir, which was a big deal back then. And so you were safe. And so, so this man has made all sorts of sacrifices, and it's paid off. We're now told he's in charge of the treasury of Queen Candace, Queen of Ethiopia. So he has a lot of money. He's overseeing a lot of money. He has lots of people work for him. I mean, you can even just tell just from the, some of the details in this passage that this man has a lot of wealth. One, he's in a chariot. That was not the common uh, mode of transportation. The other is that he's come from Ethiopia, which means he somehow has the means to take like months, maybe even a full year off of work, he's got a lot of money. He has a scroll. He had enough money to buy a scroll. Like 0.5% of the population probably owned a scroll. That was a sign of wealth during this time. And we don't know why he came to Jerusalem. Obviously, he'd heard something about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't know if that that was something he was taught when he was younger, or maybe something that he heard about, because he's, he's, he's a court official. He would have heard things from other kingdoms. But he goes to Jerusalem, but here's what he would have found out when he got to Jerusalem. Regardless if this is something he grew up hearing about, or maybe it was something new that he was just exploring, when he would have gotten to Jerusalem and come to the temple, he would have found out that he would have had two strikes against him. One, he's not a native-born Jew. And also, according to Deuteronomy 23, because he was a eunuch, he was ceremonially unclean. So he would have come to the temple, but there was different layers to the temple, as you remember. The, the, the very inside, only the high priest went into one to year. But then you had an area where the Jews could gather and worship. And then outside of that, there was an area called the court of the Gentiles. So he, he would have come to worship, but also been confronted with the fact that this God is holy. And you can't just come on my terms to worship him. He would have been confronted with God's holiness he would have been confronted with his own inability, his own weakness, his own shame. He would have been physically, he would have physically actually been standing out on the inside. He was an outsider. He was on the outside looking in. Some of you know what that is. So some of you know what it feels like to be an outsider. We all probably feel that in some sense, but maybe you feel like that particularly religiously. You might be here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. You might even be surprised that you're here. You might be like, well, the person that you're surprised is here, that, that's me. I am here. And maybe you know what it is to feel like you're on the outside. And maybe that's because of something, uh, even what, what Jonathan mentioned earlier. You, you might feel shame about something in particular. Uh, or maybe you've always felt like an outsider because of something specific, or maybe that's just the way you've always felt. Or maybe there is something actually in your past, whether that's something that you've done, or something that happened to you, or something in your family, where you've always felt like an outsider. This man was an outsider looking in. And it's at this point, at some point, he gets a scroll, and he's on his way back. And he's reading Isaiah 53. And God really teases up for Philip, doesn't he? And he sends Philip 
who's in the middle of having a great time in Samaria, seeing converts, and he says, go to the desert. And when he gets to the desert, he says, there's a chariot there. Go up and talk to that man. There is a little bit of comedy in this scene, by the way. We're not told the chariot's, the chariot's moving, but it probably is. This is an odd form of evangelism, you know, like, see that moving vehicle? Go up and ask that person what they're reading, you know. Um, this is what he does. He goes up and he says, hey, do you understand what, what you're reading? No. How can I understand? And so they read together this passage from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Who is this prophet writing about? Is he saying this about himself or about someone else? And this is what Philip tells this man. who's an outsider looking in. This is what he tells him. He tells him the good news about Jesus. We don't get all the details of that conversation. Man, it'd be awesome to be in that chariot. But, but here's the gist of what we know Philip told him. That is not about the author. That is about Jesus. Jesus was the Lamb of God who was humiliated for your sake and for my sake. He took on your shame. The Son of Man, Mark 10 says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you read on in Isaiah 53, verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see what Philip is saying is, is that Jesus, the Son of God, was sacrificed for your sake. We are not told how long this scroll was. It was probably pretty long. If you're going to spend that kind of money, you probably had a couple of, at least a couple of chapters of Isaiah. And he's on a month-long journey. And so after they read that, you can probably imagine what he did for the rest of his journey. Probably read more of the scroll. And if he would have read just three chapters down from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56. This is the words he would have heard from Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. To a man who has literally cut himself off, God says, I'm going to give you a name that will never be cut off. What's interesting is that he ends up being baptized. What happens at baptized, at baptism? He will be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Philip is saying, you get a new name. Why? Because of something amazing that you did? You get new access because of your credentials? No, this man had all the credentials in the world, and yet he was still hungry. Why? Because Jesus took on the shame of people like eunuchs. To people who are outside, Jesus longs to see them brought in. How? 
because he took on their sin. He took on their shame. Jonathan mentioned we were in RUF together, and my first two years in RUF was in a prayer group with a pastor who had a daughter uh, named Amelia. Uh, She ended up passing away uh, a few years ago. A special needs child. From the very beginning, the doctors gave her very little chance of living very long, and she far exceeded those. Uh, But she was never able to really communicate, couldn't do simple things uh, like dress herself, was was confined to a wheelchair, and one day he took his kids to the park. He had two boys as well. And Amelia's in a wheelchair, and there's diapers in the wheelchair. And all his children are far beyond the age of wearing diapers. Um, and some kids, other kids in the park, notice the diapers. And, he can, and, and the, Steve, the pastor, can start hearing these comments being made, like some of them are poking fun, like, why would someone wear diapers? And they're clearly making fun uh, of his daughter. And he's, he's about to intervene and say something, and then he hears one of his sons say, those are my diapers. Let's not talk about it. See what that little boy did? That little boy, and we don't, it's unlikely that Amelia even knew to feel shame. There might be things you don't even know we should, you should feel ashamed about. That little boy took on her shame. And in the passage, Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch are reading, we're reading that the God of the universe, who has all power and has nothing to be ashamed about, took on your shame and my shame. All the things that we feel icky about ourselves, he wore it and he was punished for it. We don't have to live in that anymore. That's no longer your name. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those things don't define you anymore. Now we've been given a new name, the name of our Savior who took on our shame. I can't imagine what good news this was for this eunuch. I, I, it's one of those stories like, man, I'd love to hear the rest of that story. But it changed his life. He's baptized right then and there. Philip was able to go to that man because he knew that truth. What is it that's preventing you from going to the people and the places that are hard in this city and this family? It's likely shame and embarrassment. I'm reading A Grief Observed right now uh, by C.S. Lewis. And it's really interesting. He talks about, it's after the passing of his wife, and he talks about a feeling that he wasn't expecting to feel, which was shame and embarrassment. And he said, and it's really interesting, he said, that is actually a bigger obstacle. That's a bigger hindrance to me loving other people than my vices. Oftentimes we think it's like, oh my gosh, it's these bad things that I do that are preventing me from being a witness to Jesus' name. And he says, actually, shame and embarrassment prevent me so far more than these other things in my life. That's what Jesus came to put his healing touch on in your life, to set you free to follow him 
to the ends of the earth. Let's pray for his help as we do that. Father, Lord, your mission is so great and awesome and far beyond our imagination. So, Lord, even as we ask for your blessing upon it, Lord, we recognize how much we need your help. And so, Lord, we thank you that in Christ we don't have a Savior that merely has died for us, who despised the shame and took it on and has healed us. But, Lord, we have a Savior who even now is interceding on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we need you. Pour out your Spirit. Lord, we long to see that good news of that gospel touch every corner of this city and this world. Be with us, we pray, as we follow you. In Christ's holy and precious name, amen.